Welcome to The Edge, a Skillsoft podcast for learners and leaders alike. You know this. In every episode, we're engaging in candid, thought-provoking conversations on the topic of learning and growth in the workplace. Today's episode, we're going to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, I know you're going to say we've done this before, but this topic deserves more airtime. And so I'm really excited to be bringing it here to you today. In our most recent leader camps, we've addressed many aspects of DEI, but today we're going to focus on the topic of belonging. What does it mean to feel like you belong at work? For many, it's about feeling included, feeling welcome, feeling confident that you can bring your whole self to work and perceive equity, including pay and fairness which is about opportunity. And in the eyes of your colleagues, your managers, and your organization's senior leadership, it's about making sure that you feel like you matter. You know, I read a recent study by Deloitte in which 79% of respondents said that fostering a sense of belonging at work is important to their organization's success in the next 12 to 18 months. But when we think about all the work that must be done around diversity, equity, and inclusion, this concept of employees feeling like they belong, well, it's not necessarily a given. So let's consider these stats from Deloitte's 2019 State of Inclusion Report. Nearly two-thirds of employees surveyed had experienced bias in their workplace in the past year. Of those workers, six in 10 said they experienced it at least once a month, and most notably, These acts of bias happened while other employees were watching in the course of a workday. So I have to wonder, when that happens, do people speak up on behalf of their colleagues? Do they know what to say or how to take action? Do they feel confident that they have the resources to understand discrimination and bias in the workplace and know how to serve as an ally? And until everyone knows what to say and do, I'd say we have a lot of work on our hands because for many employees, feeling like you belong can't become a reality until entire organizations challenge bias and end discrimination and until we build policies and cultures that make everyone feel included and valuable for who they are. I recognize these are difficult topics, but we have to engage in conversations like the one we're going to have today. And today's guest is a passionate champion for starting these difficult conversations. And she brings a wealth of expertise on how to help organizations listen, learn, and act. Sue John is a principal at Diversity at Workplace Consulting Group, an innovative implementation-focused consulting and training organization centered around diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Sue, welcome. And thank you for joining us on The Edge. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't we start, why don't you start actually by telling our listeners a little bit about you, your organization, and the kinds of work that you're doing at Diversity at Workplace, and perhaps you can share a bit of your own background and what motivates you. Absolutely. Uh, Again, pleasure to meet you all. My name is Sue. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And our organization, Diversity at Workplace Consulting Group, exactly does what the name says. Uh, we work with organizations to diversify their workforce, uh, to create equitable processes, and to make sure that there are inclusive norms in everyday uh, uh, work. And that's what we do. And we work with many different organizations across many different uh, industries. And my background really comes from 
having done this work and led diversity um, and inclusion and recruiting and talent development and associate engagement um, inside organizations, uh, was really became passionate about doing it um, with many different organizations um, and seeing the different industries and the different cultures and use the different cultures and the different industries uh, to make an impact with diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that is my background. Really, the main reason why we all decided to uh, have our own consulting business is really because we realized a lot of organizations focused on awareness, but stopped right there and didn't really focus on behavioral changes and process changes and everyday norm changes. Um, so uh, that's why we decided to do this work on our own. I think that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And I wanted to talk about some of the perhaps challenges that you've observed, but you just identified them, right? So it seems as if we we start to build the types of programs that generate awareness. We understand that there is a challenge, mm. but then what are we actually doing to drive the kinds of behaviors and processes and norms that that drive real change. So when you when you're talking to companies, what is it that is preventing them perhaps from moving ahead, from going beyond that awareness piece? You know, often companies come to us saying, "Can you help us with diversity, equity, and inclusion?" And really the question can be should be, "What can we do? What can we change?" to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and what I mean by that is sometimes, for example, organizations can say, sometimes even have it on their walls, have it on their websites, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. have it as part of their mission statement that we want our employees to bring their true authentic selves to work. Well, that's a great statement, but then you have to ask yourself, well, how are you making that possible? Um, so imagine if you are an employee and you see that as a mission of an organization, we want everyone to be their true authentic self, but yet at the same time be given advice on how to be successful here, which is the exact opposite of being authentic, mm. uh, for example. And knowing that a lot of times tips that we get for being successful does not match our authentic self. So a lot of times we're on eggshells or we're literally faking it in order to um, uh, play the part so that we can be successful. And that goes right in the face of um, belonging, as you described at the beginning of this program. As a follow-up to that, where does it start then? Because you just identified this conflict between what we say and what we mm. what we need to do. Mm. So we always say it starts at the top, but does it really start at the top? Is that, you know, is it that that leadership level, executive leadership who needs to be the driving force behind this? Or is it really born out of what employees are looking for and are they driving the kinds of change? That question has been raised, you know, raging on for decades. And really the answer is all of the above. Mm -hmm. This work cannot happen without leadership, support, resources, and sometimes permission. And this work cannot go if there is 
isn't the, the desire and the grassroots passion from the employees. And it goes nowhere without the know-how and the actual action of the middle management. So it takes all levels, not just any one of them. And I think too often we only stop at one of those levels and don't reach the other two. And that makes sense. And so as you think about it, and and this may be a a challenging question because, you know, I I will say this, in the wake of um, the murder of George Floyd, we had a number of customers come to us and say, I need help. We are not having the right kinds of conversations. The training we have is not good enough. And so they really wanted to be able to navigate the topics of bias and discrimination in the workplace through the lens of this social injustice movement, uh, or I'm sorry, social justice movement that was happening, you know, in society. And so I think that, you know, when you look at it, we see organizations that are looking for guidance in the here and now. What can I do? How do I get started? And and, and who owns it? Because we know that, for example, in some cases, we have um, chief learning officers or chief human resource officers who are now being tasked with figuring out how to drive a new DEI program or policy, and, and is that really the right way to do it? Yeah, let's uh, let's unpackage all of that. So I would say <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a, a lot, there's a lot to unpackage there, a lot of different things happening at the same time. But um, first, I would say it used to be that it was considered too risky and unpredictable to talk about race and racism at work. Right. It was uncomfortable and it was something that was sort of avoided. And those of you who have been in the workplace a long time, like myself, you know, it wasn't that long ago where we said, leave politics at home, leave your, you know, your social issues at home, leave your personal life at home. And it's all about work. And now it has all blurred. And so for many of us, it's uncomfortable to talk about those things at work. So we have to remember that. And let's also be very frank. It wasn't that long ago that we were as leaders told to be colorblind. And now we're told to be color aware. And that's a, that's an expectation shift that we really um, must acknowledge and, and realize that, that that expectation shift has happened. And you're asking people in human resources who have been trained to mitigate disruption to be equipped to have these type of conversations at work. So you could only imagine it's, it's many different things and shifts happening at once. Um, so first I would say it is, I believe, riskier not to talk about race at work nowadays. Because if you're not talking about it, people are making their own assumptions about how this organization feels about it. And even if you made an incredibly bold statement on your website in the wake of George George Floyd's murder, people may still be very much waiting to see what the organization does. How is the organization willing to um, live up to the bold statement that was made? So I do believe it's riskier not to talk about it. The other part is, I think... We often say, you know, we want everyone to feel safe talking about it, but it's really not safe to talk about race at work. The only way to create safety isn't just to keep telling people they're safe, but it's actually to create a certain designated space, structure, and good facilitation around it. Because 
We feel safe when we know we have someone who's going to manage all this while we talk about it. We feel safe when there is a clear start and end time to this conversation and when there are some clear rules of engagement. The safety comes from predictability and structure. So if human resources or the chief learning officer or the leaders or whoever is looking to do this, as long as they create the structure and permission to speak and the predictability and strong facilitation, it's actually uh, not as risky as people may think. I love that. And I will tell you that at Skillsoft, we have worked um, internally. We recognize that we didn't have that space, nor did we have the structure. And we have since put it in place. And uh, we have a group of people who are coming together to have really meaningful conversations that then extend into how can we help our entire workforce? And I will tell you, it's been an amazing experience to be a part of. Perfect. And we have to make the assumption that not everyone is willing, ready, or want to talk about this either. We all deal with things in different ways. We are all impacted to different degrees. Um, so I think there should be an understanding that it's a volunteer. People come if they wish, people share if they wish, and people listen um, to learn. I think that's the, that's the mantra. If we could have the mantra of share and listen to learn, not to convince, I think that will go a long way. So I want to shift for just a moment or segue. We're talking, we are absolutely talking about belonging and, and inclusion, but I think that we can't address this topic without looking at the mixed diversity up front, right? So we all know the aphorism, you can't be what you can't see. Um, do you believe that companies are doing a better job of welcoming diverse talent at all levels within their organization? And and I, I would assume that there's probably work that still needs to be done. But if so, what are the areas in which you see that we still need to improve? I think more organization want to be diverse more than ever. Have they gotten better at making that happen? Um, I think this is the moment where we're going to know that. We don't quite know just yet, but the desire is stronger than ever. And I think people understanding that it's not as easy or as hard as they may have once thought, I think, I think we're now at that tipping point. Um, so uh, a few things that I think organizations can do to be more successful at recruiting and retaining diverse talent is, um, is the following. Number one, stop looking within your own network. Uh, a lot of people say, I can't find diverse talent. And that's because they're looking within your, their own network. And, um, and, and there's quite a bit of data that shows that as a society and as a workforce, we have a tendency to have similar people within our network. So naturally, when you look around, you're not going to see diversity. Um, for example, there are statistics that show about 90% uh, of white Caucasians hang out with other white Caucasians. About 80% of black African-Americans hang out with other black African-Americans, for example. So naturally, networks tend to not overlap. So I would say the first thing is look outside your network. Second thing is, um, and I'm going to be very blunt here, is we have a tendency to want diverse talent, but in this way. We want people who act 
behave and work just like us, but come in diverse packages. And when we do that, we're only letting in very few exceptional talent that we feel comfortable with into our organization. And that kind of, of, of thought process, and we don't even know we're doing it, right? It's, it's that kind of expectation and thought process. There's a sort of a, a, a saying that we only let extraordinary people of difference in. The rest we sort of keep out. Um, and if we can't get over those two phenomenons of looking for diverse talent, but ones that are just like us, um, or feeling like we only should let in extraordinary people of difference in, unless we get over those two things, um, we're not going to be able to make a lot of difference. And then the third thing I would say is we can't expect the people who are coming into the organization to do all the assimilating. We have to change the organization itself to be welcoming, accommodating, open, and actually have practices, norms, and processes in place that would allow all people of difference to be successful, not just come in, but actually be successful. Because if you're successful, you will retain. That is so insightful. And I'm sure everybody is listening to this going, oh my God, right? I mean, because there's there's a little bit of self-reflection that we have to do on this topic. And sometimes that's hard to do because we have to look at ourselves and be very critical about the things that, you know, we, we may have the best intentions, but but to your point, are we really only looking at people? Sure, they may have some differences, but really they're a lot like us. And I think that's a really hard thing for people to acknowledge and then accept, yes? Absolutely, because I often hear two things. I can't find diverse talent. And then the second thing is, but I want the best person qualified for the job. And best person qualified for the job is probably the most subjective statement anyone can make. And best qualified for a job, um, Dr. Robert Livingston just wrote an article for Harvard Business Review that talked about looking for the best qualified for the job is like looking for a unicorn. It doesn't really exist. I mean, if you think about it, even sport organizations do all this work and scouting and benchmarks and metrics to find out, you know, uh, the best players. And even some of them work out and some of them don't. So to assume we know who is the best qualified for the job is an incredibly subjective statement that actually is somewhat um, unfounded because we none of us have had a 100% track record with recruiting, right? Um, and some have worked out and some haven't. So uh, I think putting those two statements together, I can't find diverse talent. And then saying, I still want the best qualified for the job when you put those two sentences together, you're saying, I only want the best diverse people. And that itself is very subjective. I have to think that you're not trying hard enough. You're not looking far enough. And you're not, you're not perhaps reaching out to places. Again, we, we only want to go to certain universities when we're looking to bring in new talent. But we have to think differently about where and how people are getting 
and education, where and how they're getting their skills. And you can look at programs like IBM's P-Tech, for example, where you've got private enterprise that is helping people in underserved communities get the skills they need and be ready for the jobs of today and tomorrow. But yet that's not the traditional way in which we go out and find new talent. Absolutely. We tend to look in the same places uh, within our network. A lot of organizations have referral programs, for example, uh, which causes us to find and hire the same group of people. And to be honest, they tend to be relatively successful because our infrastructure is set up for those groups to be successful. Um, and really what I'm saying is we not only have to take a look at different places to recruit, but I'm saying we have to fundamentally change the way we look at talent. Um, the best way to explain this is, is um, I often equate diversity inclusion to diet and exercise. Not to minimize the importance of it, but in a lot of ways, we know the things to do, we just don't do them on a day-to-day -day basis. And we're expecting results while doing the same things we've always done. So for example, you know, a few decades ago, we thought meat and potatoes and butter was, was the healthiest diet. And now we know that we have to start looking at food and nutrition differently, right? I mean, some are looking at different types of diets. Um, there's so many different opinions about what is the best nutrients for your health and so forth. So we have to fundamentally look at talent in a different way. Uh, uh, in other words, best talent is now defined, has to be defined in so many different ways, not just in terms of different schools they may have gone to, but do they even need those different degrees? How much experience matters? Does it have to be experience in your own industry? Does it have to be that you have to see the kind of traits you think you have to see to know qualifications of a person? For example, a lot of, a lot of times people say, I want someone innovative and driven. Well, innovative and driven, uh, the qualities that you, sh uh, you see may not necessarily be people who are fast talking, extroverted, fast walking people, right? We tend to think the, the fast talking, fast walking people are the driven folks. Mm, that is not the case. My husband is an introvert and he's actually a slow walker, but he is probably the most driven person I know. And so making assumptions about certain traits we have to see, to meet certain qualifications is not sound and we have to really reevaluate the way we evaluate talent. I love that. And I love that you are allowing us to think maybe a little more critically about the things that, that you know, when we think about DEI policies, when we think about trying to recruit, when we think about all these things, we kind of have a general, this is what we do, but we need to be more critical of the ways in which we do them. So as we go out and look for talent, what are we doing differently? As we bring people on board into our organizations, what are we doing differently? Because I would then probably imagine that the way that we onboard new talent into organization has to shift. And how we think about succession planning has to shift. All of those things. And uh, absolutely, those things have to shift. I, I think we've been focusing too much on we're not actively and deliberately excluding anyone. I have to make that assumption. And, and so now it's really about how are we actively including people? 
What steps are we taking to actively include? Not, not the fact that we're actively excluding. I'm going to make the assumption no one's doing that anymore. Um, I, so now it's really about how are we actively including. I love this notion of active inclusion, and I think it's a great way to be thinking about it. I want to I want to switch gears because we'd be remiss. Look, I'm sitting here in my house. I've, I've introduced you probably to my pets. They're over there, right? This is new for us. Um, I would imagine too that in your efforts most recently, and you've talked to customers and clients who have come up against challenges in the COVID-19 pandemic era. And look, COVID has highlighted even greater inequities in our society. The CDC noted that race and ethnicity, they are risk markers for other underlying conditions that impact health. But but here you're also talking about things like socioeconomic status, access to healthcare, increased exposure to the virus due to the potential occupation, right? And so as we think about the people who have been most impacted, a lot of times they are underserved and or minority population. So as we think about that as another layer, how do companies not only address diversity, equity, inclusion policies and training, but now ensure the safety and well-being, physical and mental, of their employees during this challenging time, which has disproportionately affected certain groups? There are so many different things, and I, I don't actually think we could address them all here today. Uh, but but uh, but uh, it's an excellent question that is worthy of a longer answer, uh, I suspect, than we have time for. But let's at least uh, you know attack it in, in in these three ways. Number one is um, realize that yes, COVID has limited us, but it has also made it incredibly open and freer to hire people regardless of geographic location. So for example, it, now we know people who work remotely are effective and we can get over this sort of uh, 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 geographic barrier that has existed. So it's no longer that your area, that you're looking for diverse talent in your own region, you're now looking for diverse talent across the whole country. So that door has opened quite wide for you. So please leverage that 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 opportunity uh, during COVID days um, and realize that in this virtual working space, you now have a broader geographical uh, locations to look at. So that's number one. Number two, absolutely realize that COVID has impacted your workforce in different ways. And people are having different experiences than the one you're having. So for example, um, some of us may be fortunate enough to have a separate room where you could close the door and have conference calls all day. Um, and some of us may be fortunate enough to have video on all day. But don't assume that everyone can have video on all day. Make sure you give them some advance notice because some of us may have children or loud neighbors or pets or we have a lot of family members and being video on takes some extra preparation work uh, than, than, than just turning it on. So just remembering everything from something as simple as video on could depend on family situations. And I would say the third thing is realizing that there are some of us who has family, who have family members and friends impacted COVID on a day-to-day -day basis. I was talking to a colleague. He told me 13 of his family members have been directly impacted by COVID. So he's showing up to work with all these things on his brain and, and, and on his emotions. Um, and, and he may show up to a meeting without showing any of that, 
Uh, but we have to make the assumption that there are so many of those things happening behind the scenes, along with the recent events of the election, um, along with the recent events um, that have highlighted um, everything from uh, racial inequities, not only from a healthcare perspective, but also from uh, police and from social and systemic structure perspective. So there is so much taxing on our associates' brains uh, that we have to be aware of. And then the last thing I would say is, and, and kind of wrapping all of that, is the fact that we have defaulted to what makes us most comfortable. We have retracted to what makes us most comfortable during these COVID days. What I mean by that is um, when there is a crisis, as human beings, we tend to stick with the tried and true. And there are studies that are showing that during COVID days, we are 40% more likely to interact with work people we always interact with and 10% less likely to interact with people we don't normally interact with that work. So what I mean is those silos and those relationships are more segregated than ever before. Because why? There's, there's no chance you and I will, oops, run into each other in the hallway and have a sporadic, spontaneous conversation. There's no chance of us running into each other in the parking lot. Everything has to be scheduled, uh, which means that we're not able to interact with our colleagues um, more than um, we're used to. So we have a tendency to, we have a tendency and we are defaulting to more interactions with people and colleagues that we would normally interact with and less likely to interact with people we normally don't. So I would say we have to make an, an effort to proactively include by scheduling quick little check-in meetings with different people than ever before. It also sounds like we need, need to give people a little bit of grace, not understanding necessarily what their situations are. And, you know, I, I think that that entering with these assumptions that everybody is having the same experience that we are, it prevents you from having that empathy that you might need to have in that next meeting, being empathetic or being understanding or just acknowledging. Because, you know, one thing that really hit me, and thank you, by the way, for, for referencing this, but early on, um, even on my O team, I'm like, hey, you know what, to get together, because this is something we need to do. We're going to have cameras on, we're going to have this policy, and we're going to, you know, so that we can see each other, so that we can engage. And by the way, it was with every, it was with positive intentions only. And one of my colleagues in India said, that's not going to work for all of us here because we don't necessarily have the ability to shut off rooms or, you know, find a quiet space. And so it may be that video on policy isn't going to work all the time. And it was the first time that I took a step back and realized that I was viewing my team through the lens of what I have here. And... I have to be honest, it, it took me aback and, and made me think harder about how do I create more of a sense of belonging, even on my own team. Absolutely. And it goes all the way to everything from video on to um, uh, assuming when we say speak up more that a person is equipped and feel comfortable doing that. All the way to when we say, let's all go out for a drink after work. Um, even before COVID days, not everyone may be able to do that or feel comfortable doing that. Um, you know, I, I think it's a matter of really re-examining our norms and realizing that our norms are not everyone else's norms and not everyone may thrive in our norms. And uh, too many times we've asked others to lean in 
And if they lean in too much, they break and crack. And what we're saying now is every side has to lean in. I kind of want to take that now and move on just a little bit, because when we talk about diversity, sometimes I worry that at a societal level, we have these predefined notions of what it means to have a diverse workforce. And I wonder if we are placing emphasis in certain areas, whether it's ethnicities, race, gender, but maybe perhaps we're not looking at other areas of focus, for example, people with disabilities. So my my question to you is this, how can we build a culture that welcomes the skills and talents and perspectives of other populations of workers that is truly inclusive of people, for example, with intellectual, developmental, and, and other types of disabilities. Because your point about going and having a drink after work is one that might not feel so comfortable for somebody who is very committed to a routine, and something outside that routine is not going to work well for them. I'll start with this one particular uh, statement and, and, and go into um, uh, your question, um, which is, let's remember when we increase access for one population, we actually increase access for everyone. Uh, to give you a, a quick example, as you know, it's, it's, it, it's the law that you have um, access ramps or handicap ramps, as they're called, to into buildings. And that was really designed to allow people with different physical abilities to actually have physical access into the building. Um, but I will tell you that it's not people with uh, physical difficulties that are using them, right? We all use them. We use it when we have a baby carriage. We use it when we have luggage. We use it, you know, with all those uh, buttons we push to automatically open doors. Those of us who are worried about germs use that for, for all of that. And, and the point is, while it was designed for a certain population, designing handicap physical access ramps and access points into buildings has increased accessibility for everyone. So the point I'm trying to make is diversity, equity, and inclusions the, the efforts that you put in not only impacts one demographic, it actually increases access to everyone. Um, and, you know, for people with different abilities and disabilities, the average cost of accommodation is $500. Very low. And if you think about the fact that people with uh, disabilities are really the lowest employed demographic of any demographic. There is studies that show that there is more negative bias against people with disabilities and different abilities than race and gender combined. And if you take out seasonal work and part-time work, their employment rate is lower than 40% employed. So once you know all this, um, not to mention that People with different abilities may not even be disclosing themselves at work, which means we're already employing people with different abilities and disabilities already. And knowing that it is the hardest hit demographic from a workforce perspective, we really do have to start once again, like we said earlier in this program, rethinking what we mean by best qualified for the job. Absolutely. And and I know our time is drawing short, so I promise I won't I won't keep you too much longer, but I do want to touch on 
your upcoming leader camps as part of Skillsoft series on the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you're going to host two live learning events that are open to everyone at every organization and at no cost. And I want to make that clear because we want everybody to have access to this information. And, and we will share the details on the landing page. So when people sign up, they'll, they'll get more information. So uh, on this podcast, the first leader camp is in December, and it's about advancing meaningful diversity in the workplace. The second is in January, focusing on removing systemic bias from organizational culture. Um, And for both, we're going to dedicate a significant amount of time to open, candid Q&A, which I think people really are going to love. But, you know, when you think about what you want people to walk away with from these sessions, what's most critical? What is it that they're going to take away that's going to help them right now? I'm glad you mentioned uh, about uh, having ample time for questions is uh, I've always find that uh, people get talked at um, and they hope that what they wanted to know is covered. (laughs) Uh, And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. So it was very important for us that we have ample time for questions so that people can ask them and and take away what they need. Uh, I would say the number one takeaway or uh, there's a few. First is realizing that there is something that every organization of any size at any point of journey with diversity and inclusion, there is something that you can do. So really realizing it doesn't necessarily take a huge budget or or a huge project or initiative. There is something that everyone who tunes in can do on an individual level, on an organization level. So that's takeaway number one. Takeaway number two, I'm hoping people walk away with is realizing there are things that you're doing right now that's creating inequities. And recognize it's not just adding on things to what you do. It's actually taking a look at the things that you are doing that are creating inequities and actually recognizing and fixing them. So that's the second thing. Um, and then the third thing is to uh, realize that the barriers and challenges are not out there. They're actually right here in your organization, in the way you do things, and that you could remove them. And there is so much that you can do to not only find diverse talent, but look at your recruiting process to bring in diverse talent, but also allow your diverse talent to be successful in the organization, but also to create that sense of belonging. Because I've heard people say, I've never felt so alone while being surrounded by like-minded people. And that is what we're trying to solve for, you know, creating that sense of belonging. You know you have every right to be there, but that little question of do you belong there and do people really want you there, that is something I think we could address and really create with sense of belonging work. Um, so I would say those three takeaways, I'm hoping people come to the leadership camp and, and, uh, and, and take away those three things. I know that people are going to be so excited. Uh, We've had record participation in our previous leader camps. And I think that this now takes it a step further, right? What can I do here and now to create this inclusive environment? And what is what what can I as an individual, because oftentimes we think it's somebody else's role or it belongs to a different department. Mm -hmm. But in reality, we all have a responsibility, right, to champion within our own organizations. 
So final question, it's a three-parter, just so you know, but it's something that I've been asking my guests across all podcast episodes. And one of these days, I've said it numerous times, I plan to write an entire blog post report and or hold a podcast on this because it's fascinating. Because for many people with whom I've spoke, the pandemic has allowed us, has forced us to think about things differently, right? So we have shifted our perspectives. Many people have taken up new hobbies. They found that they actually have more time and therefore um, are using that time in so many unique ways. And so I've asked my my guests throughout the, this question and the responses have been fascinating. So I want to hear your thoughts. So it's a three-parter. Number one, what have you started to do since the onset of the pandemic that you just didn't do before? Number two, what have you stopped doing and you are so grateful that you did. And then three, as we strive for, I think what is a, a normal, a, 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 we keep saying new normal, but I don't know if, if it's, if it's still novel at this point, but what are you going to continue to do? What are you going to take with you out of this experience? So it's start, stop, continue. I think for me, it's been a journey. Um, when the pandemic started, what I found that I started doing is is I was doing all sorts of things to distract myself from reality and numbing myself. Meaning I ate more junk food than I ever did before. I watched more junk TV um, and YouTube videos than I ever did before. It was just a constant need for distraction and numbing myself. Just, just mm -hmm. kind of keeping myself emotionally and intellectually occupied mm -hmm. until we get through this. Once we all realize it's going to be more than a couple of months, <laughs> once we realized that, I became incredibly more mindful about what I was eating, what I was watching, how I was spending my time. And very quickly, right as I noticed, I, 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 I sort of noticed and recognized that, I found out I actually had less time than ever before. Uh, it turns out in our virtual world, our meetings are filled with more Zoom virtual meetings than ever before at work. While we don't have commuting, we uh, people are scheduling 8 a.m. meetings and 5 p.m. meetings and 12 p.m. meetings with the expectation that people are available because they're at home. So I find that I actually had uh, less time. And so uh, right as I was realizing that I had to be more mindful, I realized that I had less time, which made me incredibly more aware and strategic about what I say yes and no to than ever before. Like I literally pause now before I say yes or no to anything. <laughs> I, I take some time to actually really think about it. So I am even more protective than ever of my time and energy. What I don't miss is traffic. I absolutely, uh, it has been wonderful uh, going from place to place without traffic and it makes me envision, can we, can we actually just make this kind of how it is? Uh, this, this whole sort of not having traffic during rush hour. Um, and what will I continue to do is um, I'm enjoying sort of this all attention to one thing at a time. For example, when we're doing a, uh, when I'm doing one-on-one -on -one with someone, I find that I am just kind of focused only on them at that moment. There is no other physical distractions. Mm -hmm. There's no one dropping by my office. There's no, you know, other things happening. So I'm hoping to continue that 
focus you can give to individuals one at a time. I'm hoping to keep that with me uh, even when we are all uh, in person again. I really, really love that. And thank you for being so insightful. And thank you for being such an amazing guest on this podcast. The time flew by. I am so eager for us to um, bring these leader camps to bear because I think they're going to be incredibly valuable to all. To our listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in to this in every episode as we unleash our edge together on behalf of the entire Skillsoft team. We encourage you to keep learning, keep growing, and in light of our conversation today, think about how you're going to make a difference in your own organization, how you are going to be that individual that helps create a greater sense of belonging for someone else. I'm Michelle BB, and this is The Edge. Be well.